Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, I think I'm recording correctly. Mary asked me to record this. And um, is this your first session uh, together? Okay. Oh, third one. Okay. Um, of course, Mary's not going to be here this morning. Um, the uh, I think she told me there'd be about between 10 and 16 people, and it looks like we're just about there. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, first, I'll be with you this week and next week, and so uh, uh, hopefully we get to know each other a little bit. Um, I, my assumption is that you've been able to read or at least read a little bit of what the Catechism has to say about divine revelation, which is our subject for this morning. Uh, I hope that this week and next week we can have something of a, of a dialogue or an exchange uh, together. Uh, I know it's not, uh, or well, I shouldn't say, I know it's uh, not the best way to, uh, to learn something, to just passively hear about it. It's, it's more, I think, meaningful to exchange ideas and to... Uh, uh, to learn from one another, but I can talk the whole time if uh, if you don't want to talk. But uh, but please feel free to pose questions and and thoughts of your own. Uh, I don't mind being interrupted along the way. So if something comes up or if I say something doesn't make any sense, uh, you know, let me know and uh, and I'll try to go at it again and and say it a little differently. Uh, for next week, I'd like to give you a little bit of an assignment, uh, uh, not a hard assignment, an easy assignment. Uh, I'm sure Mary's probably asked you to read some parts of the Catechism for next week as well. But good morning, how are you doing? Um, but what I'd like you to do for next week uh, before we meet is to read the Nicene Creed. So the Nicene Creed uh, is the one that we recite at Mass. Uh, so uh, it really it, it talks about how we believe in God, we believe in Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Uh, I'd like you to take the time to read it slowly and write down a question or two, or three or four, whatever you come up with, write down a few questions about the creed, or at least stick them in your head. And uh, when we get together next week, I'd like to make a list of those questions uh, somehow, and see if we can work them into the course of our, our class. Uh, I tried that last year over St. Michael's. I've known Mary for a very long time, probably 20 plus years. And, uh, and I tend to go over to St. Michael's and other places as well and talk a lot about the Trinity. And so the Trinity is kind of the central mystery of the Christian faith, and all these things need to be defined and discussed, and that's what these classes are about, is trying to uh, bring some understanding uh, to the things that we might take for granted or, or maybe we don't understand. And so we want to try to bring some understanding to those things and think about them. So there's some tough things in the Creed. There's some hard words, there's some difficult concepts that may not be real clear. So, uh, so what I'd like to do next week is try to roll with your questions a little bit. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, if that doesn't work, we'll try something else. But I, I think that that'll be a good way to do it. I, I did that last time that I gave a similar presentation at St. Michael's, and it seemed to go very well because people had a lot of questions. You know, how do, what does this mean, or what does this term mean, or how does this relate to this? And so, so anyway, give it a try. Read the, the creed and see what uh, questions come to your mind. And uh, we'll see if we can talk about those next week. Let me give you just a brief introduction to, to me and what I'm doing here. Uh, I'm a convert to the Catholic Church. I came into the Catholic Church back in the, really started uh, le leaning in that direction very heavily in the mid-90s. So about half of my life I've been a Catholic. I'm 51 years old and I became a Catholic when I was in my mid-20s approximately. 
it, it took me a few years to fully end up in the Catholic Church. I grew up in something very different, a strange form of Pentecostalism. Had a lot of contact with and spent a few years in my early childhood in Baptist churches. Uh, and then ended up in a, like I say, a very weird, theologically weird form of Pentecostalism. We rejected the belief in the Trinity and other things uh, that the Catholic Church considers to be really, really valuable and important. And, uh, and so it was really my discovery of the early fathers of the church, the early writing, writers of the Christian tradition, uh, that got me thinking seriously about some of our beliefs and comparing them with uh, Catholic faith. Uh, and uh, studied at the seminary, did a master's degree there in theology, and then a, a master's degree in philosophy at the, the University of St. Thomas here. And all of that study and thinking about the Catholic tradition uh, really caused me to fall in love with it. Uh, and I saw it as a more fulfilling form of, of Christian faith uh, than what I had grown up in. And so I became a Catholic, and shortly thereafter, uh, started teaching at a school here in Houston, uh, Strake Jesuit College Preparatory, which is an all-boys Catholic high school, about 1,340 students right now, uh, uh, run by the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, which is a religious order in the Catholic Church. And, uh, and so started teaching theology there uh, 22 years ago now, uh, again, shortly after I had formally entered into the Catholic Church. Uh, so started teaching theology there, and then about 10 years ago was asked to assume a new role there of assistant principal for formation. And so my job there uh, involves sort of daily working with our faculty and staff in terms of our Catholic and Jesuit mission as a school. So this is what I do. I spend my time uh, talking about the Catholic faith and trying to... Good morning. Um, uh, so anyway, that's a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm married. We have five children that are, are uh, pretty much grown. I have a daughter that, that just graduated from... Uh, high school, and uh, but anyway, so we uh, uh, I've uh, they've all grown up around the Catholic faith, but uh, but that wasn't my uh, origins, and so uh, so anyway, that's just a little bit about my own uh, journey, and I'm sure I'll talk a little bit about it as we as we go along. Uh, any questions about anything before we get started? Uh, any anything on your mind that uh, uh, that I may or may not be able to answer? I don't know anything practically about this place. This is my first time to come in this building. Uh, I was told there was a restroom somewhere in the back here. Um, is that over that way? Okay. Um, and uh, But I don't know anything else about this building. I was staying out in the front at the wrong entrance, I guess, uh, for five minutes. And uh, Okay. So our, our task today is to talk about the subject of divine revelation. Um, so how to get into it? Well, let's, let's just back up for a moment and think a little bit about life. Uh, I mean, here we all are. I don't know you. You don't know me. Uh, we're all awkwardly here on a Sunday morning with uh, very different life experiences, I'm sure. You all probably have an interesting story to tell of your own life. We're all in the middle of a process. You know, we're, we wake up in the morning. You probably go to work or go to school and... You know, you're, you're, you're probably, some of you raising children, some of you, you know, uh, dealing with relationships and work and learning and, and trying to figure things out. And, and you find that there's a world outside of us that is very hard to manage, oftentimes, sometimes. Maybe your life is very ordered and very structured. Uh, but also you find probably, if you're like most people, and I suspect this is true because you're here, uh, you find that there's something unsettled within us. You know, it makes me think of the book of Genesis. You know, the first chapter of the book of Genesis tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. So it's like it's this chaotic, unformed thing. 
And then God speaks to the world, you know, and says, let there be this and let there be that. And the world starts to take some order and shape. And so we find ourselves, I think, as human beings, we find ourselves in sort of the middle of these two things, kind of a, a kind of chaos, a, an uncertainty underneath things. And then we're looking for something to order that chaos, something to bring structure and focus to it. And so as we go through life, we look for things to help us figure out where is this all going and what's it for? What should I be doing with my life? Uh, how should I direct it? And oftentimes, what enters into the picture for us and helps us to kind of navigate that is relationships. Uh, often we find someone that we want to spend our life with, and we take a leap of faith with them. You don't really know what's going on inside of that other person. You think you do. You hope you do. Uh, but you unite your life with someone else. Often that's what we do. Uh, or you choose a path, a career path. Uh, or when we're young, we sort of find out or get some sense of navigation in our lives, uh, often through our family structure. Uh, you know, if you were fortunate enough to have a good family structure, your parents helped you do that uh, to kind of get a sense of direction. But as life goes on, you have to take some responsibility for that yourself. And you have to try to decide, how am I going to direct my life? And sometimes we order our lives in a way that, that we find fulfilling, and other times we order our lives in such a way that it becomes chaotic again and falls out, it falls apart. And so all of our lives, I suspect, we have stories to tell of things that went well, things that didn't go so well. And then we try to recover from those things that don't go so well, and we rebuild and we try to redirect and orient our lives. It, my point here is we're looking for something to give to us focus and direction. And oftentimes... The thing that gives us focus and direction on the deepest level is relationships. Uh, relationship with our spouses or relationships with friends and family and community that gives to us some sense of, this, oh, that's what I'm trying to do with my life, or that's what's really good for my life. Um, I, I like to, often my mind goes to, when I talk about these kind of subjects, it goes to the movie Groundhog Day. I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's kind of old now, but... Uh, uh, but it made a big impact on me when I, not the first time I watched it, I fell asleep the first time, but the, the second time I watched it, it made a big impact on me. I'd read a kind of review of the movie. And so I keep talking about it. If, you, if you've seen the movie, how many of you have seen it, by the way? Uh, okay, a lot of you have seen it. Uh, the movie Groundhog Day, it's, it's a comedy. Uh, in the came out in the 90s sometime, maybe in mid-90s or early 90s. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's all built around this weatherman, Phil, uh, who's a very, when the movie opens up, he's a very egocentric, self-centered, uh, kind of a nasty guy, kind of, you know, crude, and, and, uh, uh, but just very self-centered. He thinks he's the best weatherman in the world, uh, but people just haven't taken notice of that, so he works for uh, a uh, weather uh, or news station in uh, 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 Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he's given the assignment to go to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, to do a report on Groundhog Day. And so he reluctantly goes because he thinks the people in the town are just a bunch of hicks that aren't worthy of his presence, and, uh, but he unfortunately has to go. And so with his cameraman and his new producer on the show, Rita, uh, they go to Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, and he does the, the show. Uh, after the show, he's anxious to get out of town because he doesn't want to stay there any longer than he has to, and so they head out of town. But there's an unexpected blizzard that he didn't realize was coming, 
he's a weatherman, but he, he wasn't able to predict it. Uh, an unexpected blizzard is coming through, and, uh, and he's forced to go back into the city and stay another night into the town. So he goes back into the town. He stays at the same bed and breakfast that he stayed at the night before. And he wakes up the next morning, and he slowly comes to the realization that he's repeating Groundhog Day, that he's repeating the same day. Now, the difference is he knows he's repeating the day, but nobody else knows it. So he lives through another day, and he thinks something's going wrong with me. So he goes to see the doctor, and the doctor says, I can't, I can't find anything wrong. Uh, and then he goes to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist can't figure out what's wrong with him or, or freaks him out, and he doesn't want to talk to him anymore. And, uh, and so he's unsure about what to do. So he ends up, he, and he wakes up the next day, and he's still in the same town. So he's caught in this time loop where he keeps repeating the same day over and over again. And so he goes to uh, the bowling alley in the town and uh, has this conversation with a couple of town drunks. And, uh, and he says, you know, what would you do if you're stuck in the same town and repeating the same thing every day and so on? And uh, they said, well, that just about sums it up for us. You know, that's the way our lives are. But, uh, but there would be no consequences. If you repeat the same day over and over again, you can do whatever you want to do. And so Phil thinks, aha, now that's a great idea. I can do whatever I want in this city, but I'll wake up the next day as if it didn't even happen. And so he starts living it up, and he does whatever he wants to do. He drives the wrong way on a railroad track. He, uh, you know, uh, gets arrested for all kinds of different things, stealing and uh, uh, robbing a bank and uh, uh, trying to seduce the women of the town and so on. So he does all these different things. But after a while, it starts getting really, really shallow and surface and phony. Uh, he tries to seduce Rita, his uh, producer, beautiful young lady, but she always sees through him. She always, after, by the end of the day, she sees what he's doing and recognizes that he's being phony. He's not being genuine. He's just trying to trick her and deceive her. And so after that happens over and over again, and this is going on for many, 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 many days, where he's trying to figure out everything's going on in the city and try to, uh, uh, you know, uh, get, just have all the fun that he can have. But he finds that it's so shallow, now he can predict everything that happens in the town. It's not fun anymore. Life is boring. Not only is it boring, he just comes to a place of despair. I don't even want to live anymore. And so he takes his own life, only to wake up in the same bed and breakfast the next day, listening to the same Sonny and Cher song on the radio. And so he kills himself over and over and over again, but he still finds himself waking up in the same bed and breakfast. So he has this heart-to-heart -heart conversation with Rita and says, look, I've come to the end of myself. I don't know what to do. Uh, I, I'm miserable. Life is, is so shallow and I'm depressed, but I can't end it all. And I don't know what to do. And she says to him, maybe it's not so bad, Phil, that you're stuck in the same day. Most of us only have one chance at every day. But you can make it a perfect day. And a light bulb goes on his mind. And he says, I'm going to try to make this a perfect day for everybody in this city. And so he goes around and he tries to find everything that goes wrong and tries to fix it. He can't fix everything. But he tries to fix everything. And so his life has fundamentally changed. His whole direction in life has fundamentally changed. Uh, he learns how to play a piano because that's what Rita likes. She likes someone that plays an instrument. And so he learns to play a piano. That gives you some sense of how long he's stuck in this day because it takes a long time to get good at playing a, uh, at playing a piano. And he becomes really, really good at playing a piano. And so by the end of the movie, uh, Phil shows up at this town party that they're having and he plays the piano, he, uh, you know, everybody comes up to him and, and thanks him for all the good that he did for them that day. And Rita sees that he's become a genuine, caring, loving human being. He's transformed.
and they fall in love in an exhaustion. They fall to sleep and wake up the next day and it's a new day. There's snow on the ground outside. The blizzard has already passed. And so uh, I, I love the movie for a bunch of different reasons, but I love the movie because it shows how uh, our perspective on things, what we're aiming at in life, profoundly affects our level of happiness. And in this case, when Phil was turned in on himself and living an egocentric life, everything was there for him to take and to use. But halfway through the movie, he goes through this conversion where he reorients his life towards love, toward trying to win the love of Rita and all the people in the city. And so he shifts from being self-centered to being self-giving. And in that shift, he discovers real joy and real newness, freshness. In the first part of the movie, it kind of, it, it kind of is a parody of a view of life that sees it as just an endless, you know, you ever heard what someone say, life is just a rat race. I do the same thing every day. I sometimes tell my students that I've, I've talked, and I can say that in here too. I don't know how many times I've done a similar presentation to this uh, on divine revelation or whatever. Many, 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 many times through the years. I mean, used to teach five classes a day, you know, uh, seven days, I mean, five days a week for, you know, many, many years. And so thousands of times I've stood in front of groups of people and talked about something remotely connected to what we're talking about now. If I just focused on the fact that I'm doing the same thing over and over again, driving the same path to work, coming home the same path, you know, going through the same routine in the morning, same routine at night, it would, you could, if you just focused on that, on the repetitiveness of it, and all of our lives have that in it, unless you're 007 or something, you get a new assignment every day, uh, you, you are, we are going through similar routines regularly. And so the question is, how can I find real depth and meaning in the midst of such repetition? And the answer, my students are often you know, brilliantly insightful on this, and they say, well, it's because we're new. And that's right. We have never been together, first of all, in this room, at, in this moment, talking about and thinking about this. But not only that, I've never spoken about this subject at this point in my life with the experiences that I've had, and you've never encountered this moment with your life experiences and the place you are at in your life. So this moment, despite all the repetition that might be present in it, and you'll be here you know, a bunch of Sundays, Despite the repetition that's there, there's also a newness that's there. There's a freshness that can be there if we look at it the right way. So what I'm talking about here is we need something toward which to direct our lives, and we need something toward which to direct our lives that will bring order to it and bring happiness to it and bring real peace to us. That's our problem as human beings, is we need to know what it is that orders our life. Now, we find various things to order our lives in different ways. Like I say, family often and uh, friendships and communities and, and so on that help us to order our lives. Divine revelation, which is our subject this morning, divine revelation is all about how God has revealed to human beings the ultimate structure or framework in which to situate our lives that God has communicated to the world a framework, a context, to orient our lives in all of their ups and downs and all of their challenges, God has given to us a way of knowing that. Divine revelation is all about us 
Finding how to listen to the voice of God. Where has God spoken? How do we know what God has to say? Now this raises all kinds of questions. What do we mean by God? What do we mean by God speaking and so on? It's obviously the case that God doesn't speak to us uh, through, you know, occasional blasts from heaven. You know, like God says, you know, we wake up in the morning and at 8 o'clock God then speaks or writes in the clouds. You know, this is what I want you to know today. God doesn't communicate like that. God apparently, I mean, just looking at, at the way the world is structured, assuming the reality of God, that there is a supreme first principle upon which we all depend that is the ultimate answer to all questions. That is the supreme source of all that is. If such a reality exists, I believe with all my heart uh, God does exist, and we can talk about that, and we will talk about that in a few minutes. If it is the case that God really exists, that there is an ultimate orienting principle, there is an ultimate source of all that is, that, that our hearts are on a very deep level longing for. Like St. Augustine famously said, you, you probably saw this in the Catechism, he famously said in his uh, uh, marvelous book, uh, Confessions, where he tells his own story of finding the way to Christ and to God's love. Uh, St. Augustine says on the opening page of that work, uh, means a lot to me, his, his writing, he says, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so this underlying restlessness, or what I've called the chaos, this, this turmoil within us, that searching for order and structure and direction, that experience that we all have on many different levels, uh, that is a kind of sign of the human need for divine revelation. But God apparently has set this world up in such a way that we have to, uh, it's not that God gives to us his revelation by writing it in the clouds or sending a, a love note every day to us, handwritten by God with miracles accompanying it. God doesn't do that. God wants this life on some level to be a journey for us in which we learn how to hear the voice of God. We call that faith, where what we mean by faith is not just taking a leap into the dark or believing things that are irrational or believe. No, what we mean by faith is something like what happens between, say, a husband and a wife when they choose to unite their lives together. We have some evidence. When, when my wife and I got together and we decided to blend our lives together, I had some evidence that she loved me. I couldn't see into her mind, however. Uh, she could have had other motives. I couldn't know at that point whether or not my understanding at that point would be my understanding five years later or 10 years later or 20 years later. I, w I couldn't know that perfectly. I could, I could have some confidence in it. I could have some evidence of it. But at a certain point, I had to trust. And God has made a world in which trust is crucial to our advancing. Anybody ever seen that movie... Uh, I don't watch very many movies, but, but the few that I have watched uh, often stick in my mind. Um, I mean, I've watched plenty of movies, but I don't make a habit of it regularly. Uh, but there was a movie I watched years ago, um, Along Came Polly. Anybody ever seen that movie? Uh, it, so it has this, uh, you know, I won't tell you the whole story because I don't remember the whole story, but, but, the key, but the key point in the movie was that, um, you know, this guy gets married at the beginning of it, uh, and his wife immediately on their honeymoon is cheating on him. And so he's really, really depressed about that. And then along comes Polly, who's this uh, young lady who had, uh, that he had gotten to know in like intermediate school or something like that. And they cross paths, and they are very, very different people. Uh, he's like uh, one of these uh, people, what do you call them, uh, these people that, uh, 
determine risk for insurance policies. Uh, what do you call that? Actuarial or something or other. I forget the, the word for it. But anyway, it, it, his job is to decide by, by interviewing people and getting to know them whether or not high uh, dollar insurance policies are too big a risk for the company uh, for them to extend a, a policy or to decide what the rates will be for a policy. So like, for example, if somebody wants a $5 million life insurance policy, but they like rock climbing without, you know, uh, anything to attach them to the rocks, or they like jumping out of airplanes regularly, uh, then uh, that might be too big a risk for the company, uh, the insurance company. So anyway, that's his job. Uh, she's kind of a rough around the edges person who has never had much wealth or uh, kind of had an unstable family background or whatever behind her. And so they, they cross paths and he falls in love with her tentatively because he's still very wounded and hurt by, the, by what his uh, uh, wife had done to him on their honeymoon. And so uh, as the movie goes on, he gets more and more nervous about trusting her because he's afraid. And so what he does is he puts into the computer the computer program, the risk factors uh, for his relationship with her. And it spits out at the end, it's too big a risk. Don't continue with her. And she sees his computer. He doesn't know that she sees it uh, and, and realizes that, that he thinks their relationship can't work. And, uh, and so it creates this blow up. But they eventually get over it. But, uh, but my point is, if you put risk factors in for our relationships, and not that you shouldn't pay attention to those sometimes, but if you put risk factors in, there's a lot of risk. And if a person wants to you know, uh, go in that direction too far, then they'll never trust anybody because there's always risk, always with trust. Faith is a kind of trust in God. And God gives to us enough to draw our hearts to consider the invitation to trust. He gives us enough. Now, how does God do that? But we still have to respond, and we still have to say yes, and we don't have to. That's the point, is we don't have to. That's why it's faith. So if I came in here and tried to prove to you everything that we are inviting you to in divine revelation, if I tried to prove that, like, you know, uh, the interior angles of a triangle equal 180 degrees, uh, if I try to prove that to you, I could, I could do that. That's probably about the only proof I could give you. But I could, I could show you a proof for that that's convincing. It's airtight, logically and deductively. But I can't do that for the love of my wife. It's a different kind of thing. And I can't do it either for why you should believe the Catholic faith. But what I can do is show you some powerful reasons to pay attention to, to these invitations. So what is divine revelation then? Uh, divine revelation, or, or what, is it, what does it consist of, I guess is my, is my first question. Uh, so what we believe in the Catholic faith is that God has made his, the reality of God evident to us, evident enough that if we're attentive, we can see that God is there. Now, there are two big ways in which we believe this is, uh, this is the case. Uh, so when we talk about divine revelation, we think in the Catholic tradition of two ways, and I'm thinking of it in my mind like this. We think of, that's revelation is my term there. We think of natural revelation, that's one word we use, natural revelation, and then we think of what we might call supernatural revelation. And let me explain those briefly. Uh, as I look across the room at you, I can see some things about you. 
even though I don't know you, uh, I know some things about you. For example, I know that you exist. You're in the room. I can see you. Uh, I know approximately how tall you are. I know I could take a pretty good guess at how much you weigh. And, and if we had a scale, we could stand on it and know. Uh, so there are some things about you that I can verify by looking across the room. But there are other things about you, perhaps the most important things. I mean, it's pretty important that you exist. Uh, but there are other things about you that, once I know that you exist, are really, really important. And I can't know those unless you share them. So every one of you in here has a story, a life story. You have things that you love and care about or are important to you that if those were known, they would profoundly affect the way that we relate to each other. When I know some things about another person, it changes the way you see them. Uh, I don't know how many times I've heard that in my life recently. I heard it where someone said, someone was saying something critical about another person. And a few days later, they came and said, you know, I found out there was a reason for you know, their behavior, and uh, I wish I hadn't said something so harsh about them, because now they knew something about them, and it changed the way they viewed them. Uh, As we sit here in this room, there are things about you that we can know, looking across the room, but there are other things we can't know unless you disclose them, unless you reveal them. That's kind of the difference here between natural and supernatural revelation. We believe that there's some things we can know about God by looking at the world around us and by studying it and thinking about it. And I'll give you an example or two. Uh, uh, For instance, uh, a very uh, common way of thinking in the Catholic tradition is to say that we can look at the world and there are some things about it that, um, that prompt the mind to what seems to be an endless series of questions. And you can do that on many different levels. You know, you can think about... You know, there, there, there are things about the world, like you, you try to study something and you discover that when you study that and try to really understand it, whatever it is, try to study a mosquito. And you, you study the mosquito. I knew many years ago a man who, uh, I think he passed away here recently, in the last few years, uh, but he was uh, the husband of a lady that taught computer science at our school. And they moved to, uh, he, he got an endowed chair position at, the, uh, at Notre Dame, the University of Notre Dame, uh, because of his expertise in fruit flies. And so he had spent his whole career studying fruit flies. Now, imagine that. Uh, Here's someone who worked for, I don't know, 15, 20 years at the University of Notre Dame, an endowed chair, a professor there, because of his intense work on fruit flies. Now, I don't know much of anything about fruit flies, uh, but apparently you could spend your whole life studying them and never exhaust it. Because when you study the fruit fly, then you're going to expand out to study the environments of the fruit fly, the evolution of the fruit fly, the distinctions within fruit flies, and you could study, you could go inside the, the fruit fly and studying it for a long time. You could go to the environmental conditioning and, and, and expressions of the fruit fly, and that will eventually expand out, if you do it long enough, to include everything, just like it would be with ourselves. If you really want to study uh, to, the, to the end anything, you'll end up telling the whole story of the universe because we're all interconnected and one thing slips away to another, to another, to another. And so it seems as if all the things that we can study in this world are not self-explanatory. They are things that depend yet on something else, yet on something else, yet on something else, yet on something else. And so the world around us seems to be this interconnected series of things that are a bunch of question marks. The whole world of our experience is an, seems to be an endless series of question marks that keep prompting the mind, if you're, if you're diligent enough, they keep prompting the mind to ask why and to curiously investigate. 
life's not long enough for us to figure all of those things out. But, but we can step back and ask this question. And, and human history is not long enough to figure out all those questions. But we can step back and ask this question. What if everything in the world is a question? What if everything in the world prompts our mind to ask, why is it? And how did it come to be that way? It's, it's suggestive of some supreme answer. Because everything in this world is an incomplete answer. And so if the whole world is a collection of incomplete answers, then it suggests that the explanation of them all is something that transcends them all, is something that undergirds and supports and explains all of these incomplete things. Now, there's a lot of different ways to present that. I mean, there's some more sophisticated, more uh, airtight ways of going through that line of reasoning. But that's one way of approaching this subject. That's an example. Everything I just got through saying is an example of natural theology. That we can use reason, we can use the gift of reason, apply it to experience, and we can find various ways in which the mind is pointed to <coughs> some transcendent source. And what I mean by transcendent is not something in this world, but something that grounds the world or the universe, something that supports it all, that is not one more of those things in it. Just not one more unexplained thing. Uh, anyway, we can talk more about that uh, if you'd like. Um, uh, but what is an example of supernatural theology? All right, well, supernatural theology, this is this God that we <coughs> discover over here through natural reasoning or natural revelation and we call this natural revelation because in this sense the whole world becomes a way that God speaks to us every time we encounter something that doesn't explain itself it's an invitation to think about that which does explain it all and that we call God and so if this is a, a correct line of reasoning I think it is I think it's sound if this is a correct line of reasoning then every experience in life is potentially an invitation to consider God to the degree that we become conscious in our lives of the dependency of the world, and it, it leads us to the source of that dependency. But now, let's think about divine revelation over here. What, uh, what is supernatural revelation? Well, the, the prefix super, super, would suggest above or beyond. So in addition to natural revelation, and there, historically there are many uh, philosophical thinkers you know, down through the centuries who have recognized uh, the power of certain lines of reasoning to lead us to God. Aristotle's an example, Plato's an example of that, Cicero's an example of that. There are plenty of ancient thinkers who are uh, uh, representative of the ability of the human mind to come to some level of awareness of the reality of God. But there's also what we call supernatural revelation. And supernatural revelation, uh, <clears throat> supernatural revelation has to do with what we believe God has disclosed to human beings. By, by that I mean, you know, if I just sit over here the whole time and don't say a word, you don't know any more about me than what you can size up looking across the room. But now I've started talking, and you know that some things are important to me, you know, or some things uh, I like to think about, or whatever, or I'm, I'm aware of, or conscious of certain things. And so that informs you more about what you're looking at. So it is here. We can know some things about God, but we're limited there. We're limited to what reason can discover applied to human experience. But in supernatural revelation, we have something additional to that. We have God speaking to or relating to human beings. And in the Catholic tradition, we believe that we know about divine revelation or supernatural revelation. We know about this 
through certain sources. Now, let me explain this. Um, let me get rid of this. We believe that divine revelation comes to us in deed and word. All right, deed and word. This is not my language. This is taken from a really important document from the Second Vatican Council. So the Second Vatican Council, in the Catholic Church, when we have problems, issues that are kind of widespread issues, uh, occasionally down through the centuries, 21 times actually in the Catholic tradition, 21 times, they pull together leaders of the church called bishops from all over the world, and, uh, and they discuss and work out those issues and see what does our faith, how does our faith direct us in dealing with these challenges. There have been 21 of those in 2,000 years, so they don't happen very often. The, the last one, the latest of them, was in 1963 to 1965, and uh, that was called the Second Vatican Council because there was a First Vatican Council in the 19th century, and this one was held at the Vatican in Rome. Uh, none of the others were held there. They were held in various other cities. So... One of the documents from that council is called Dei Verbum, uh, On the Word of God, or On Divine Revelation, it's called, On Divine Revelation. So if you wanted to go see a church document that discusses uh, this subject that we're talking about, one of the most valuable ones to go to would be Dei Verbum, or uh, On Divine Revelation. What you read, did you read this catechism? You have the catechism, uh, the real catechism, not, a, uh, not another uh, text of it. So the one that you have, that, that white uh, small book, that is the, the, uh, the formally approved catechism of the Catholic Church. The catechism, catechism just means teaching, and so we have various forms of that word we use. So you, you, like you may be a catechumen, so you're learning about the faith. Uh, a catechist is someone teaching the faith. A catechism is a collection of the teachings of the church. And so the book that you have, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, is uh, kind of the official church, you know, pope-stamped document that they say, this is, this is trustworthy. Uh, any other catechism you write, write it based on this one, because this is the sort of formal thing. So if you look at that one that you have been reading and, and you started reading the section on divine revelation, you'll frequently find, I'm not as familiar with that small edition of it, this is the one that I have, but it's the same thing. Uh, if you look at the footnotes, you'll frequently see DV, 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 and it'll give a number, DV1, DV15, or whatever. Do the footnotes appear on the bottom of the page in there or are they at the back? Uh, okay, you'll see DV, I think that's how they'll abbreviate in there, I know it's how they abbreviate it in here. Uh, and DV is that document that I'm talking about, Dei Verbum. Uh, now, maybe I should say a word or two about the catechism. I don't know how much you know about the book that you're reading, uh, but it's divided into four parts. All right, so there's four big parts to that book that you're reading. Uh, by the way, if you have trouble reading it, don't, uh, don't uh, be too worked up about that. These documents tend to be very compressed, and so they're saying a lot in a short space. And uh, so as you learn the lingo and the vocabulary, it will get easier to read it. But uh, I know that a lot of people find the catechism to be very challenging uh, because it's compressing a lot. It, it's not sparing a lot of words. It doesn't do a lot to, to kind of elaborate and explain things. It's just giving you the quick summary of the things that the church teaches. But there's four major parts to it, sometimes called the four pillars of the catechism. The first part of that book deals with the creed. Uh, so, a divine revelation in the creed. And so, it, it talks about what are the contents of our faith? 
What do we say we believe about God, about Christ, about the church, and all these things? What do we say we believe? So the first part of the catechism is about what we believe. The second part of the catechism is about the sacraments. Right? So the Catholic Church is very sacramental. We believe that God uh, uh, has invited us into a relationship with himself, and that is primarily through signs that God has given to us that we experience uh, the reality of God. And so the scriptures, for example, are words that God gives to us uh, that help us to discover God. But there are also these special sacraments that we call, not that the scriptures aren't special, but there are these seven that we differentiate uh, from others, baptism, the Eucharist, and so on. These are uh, special signs through which God communicates grace to us. And so the second part of the catechism has to do with sacraments, the way we worship God, uh, the liturgy of the church, the way we pray uh, in uh, together, uh, those are the uh, things that you'll find there in the second part of the catechism. Third part of the catechism is on the moral life. How do we live? Uh, this is where you'll find a lot of uh, controversial things because the Catholic faith takes a particular stance on how the world should be ordered and how we should order our own lives. Uh, and so that part of the catechism deals with, say, the Ten Commandments, for instance, and elaborates on how to apply them to all the different moral questions we have as human beings and so on. deals with questions of conscience and how we form our conscience and uh, uh, the virtues or, or, or uh, habits of the soul that we should try to develop. The fourth part and final part of the catechism is on prayer. And so it brings together uh, the, uh, the Catholic tradition on prayer, uh, starting out by saying that prayer is really the goal of it all. Uh, prayer is communion with God, listening to God, living life in dialogue with God, and seeing God in the world around us. And so the last part of the Catechism talks about the beautiful Catholic tradition with regard to prayer. And, and prayer, just like exercise of the body, there's many different ways we exercise. Uh, so one person might run, one person might walk, one person might lift weights, you might do all those things. Uh, another person, you know, I don't know, uh, lots of different ways to exercise. So it is, there are lots of ways to exercise the human spirit in relationship to God. Uh, we can pray in lots of different ways, and there are some of those that are discussed in the Catechism. So that's, what the catechism, that's how the Catechism is structured. We right now, in these uh, presentations, are talking about and focusing on that first part of the Catechism, but you're going to walk through all of it, and you're going to see something about each of these parts of the Catechism. So, uh, so anyway, I was just saying that because when you look at those footnotes, you'll see references, a lot of references to Dei Verbum, or the, uh, the Dogmatic Constitutional Divine Revelation is the technical name in English that's given to it. And uh, that uh, document is, uh, you've already read some of it because it's often quoted in the document, that, or in the, in the paragraphs that you read. So, in Dei Verbum, that uh, document on Divine Revelation, uh, it says that God has revealed himself in deeds and words, deeds and words. Now, if you look at the Bible, now the Bible for us is uh, it's the accumulation of, of uh, writings over many centuries. So probably the first of the books written in the Old Testament probably would take us back to about 1200 B.C. or so. So about 3,000 years ago, approximately, are the oldest books written in the Bible. And then the, the last books written in the Bible were written somewhere around the close of the first century A.D. Uh, and so that means the, the newest documents in the New Testament are about 1,900 years old, and the oldest documents in the Scripture are about 3,000 years old, approximately. So that means that these books were written over uh, some uh, 1,000, 1,200, 1,300 years. And the, the documents in the Bible tell a series of stories, for the most part. Uh, some of the books in the Bible are not collections of stories, but, but many of them are. So the Bible is really a narrative made up of many smaller narratives of stories. 
What that means really at root is that the Bible is a collection of stories about how God has been working with human beings over a very long period of time. And so the Bible is a story of God entering into relationships with human beings and in those relationships steering human, the human family toward a particular direction. And that story begins with, well, it, it begins with a series of catastrophes, actually, back in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, where human beings turned away from God and uh, continually seemed to fall into chaos. To continue the idea I was using earlier, in chapter 1, God pulls the world from its chaotic origins, uh, and uh, human beings keep turning back to it, turning away from God's word that brings order to life. And so we find a series of catastrophes, the story of Adam and Eve, where they turn away from God's command, and that throws the human family into disruption and disorder. Uh, we see the story of Cain and Abel, where there, there are two sons, one of them kills the other one out of envy because one is accepted by God and the other one is not. And so that begins the story of human conflict and fratricide, conflict between brothers and sisters in the world, the abuse of men, of women by men and so on. We see that at the beginning of the, at the story of, of uh, Adam and Eve where uh, after they eat of the tree their eyes are open and they become ashamed and the man dominates over the woman and so on. And so we see these, these disharmonies enter into the human family and its history. But yet God places a value on human beings and pursues them and seeks after them and enters into relationship with them. Uh, we see the story of, uh, of the Tower of Babel where human beings try to reach the heavens without reference to God and it collapses or, or their, their languages are, are confused. Uh, we have the story of the Noah and the flood, where again we see the world is deluged and only one family survives it all. Again, it's this, see this, this cycle of human beings falling away from the word of God and the invitation of God through his revelation. And so they keep falling away from that. Well, finally, God enters into a relationship with Abraham or Abram. And you read through this in, in, your, in the paragraphs that you read, if you read through them. Uh, he enters into a relationship with Abraham and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Go to this land that I promised you. And so God starts with this one man. And then that one man grows into a family. Uh, they end up in Egypt through a long, interesting series of events. They end up in Egypt and they become enslaved. Uh, and after becoming enslaved, God raises up Moses uh, to lead the people out of Egyptian slavery toward the promised land. And so they, through a series of miracles, are uh, uh, allowed to leave, or they, by force, essentially, allowed to leave Egypt. And so they journey toward the promised land, where God is going to eventually, the promise is, eventually is going to give to them sort of the answer to the world's challenges, to the world's problems, that they, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, God says to Abraham. And so that one man becomes a family, becomes a collection of tribes, becomes a nation eventually, and it becomes a kingdom with King David, and, and, or with King Saul and then David, and God promises to David that you are going to have a son that is going to be seated upon your throne, and he is going to uh, rule over your kingdom forever, and he will be to me a son, and I will be to him a father. That becomes a promise that we see fulfilled in Jesus as that ultimate son of David uh, out of the ancestry of David, that God brings the true king into the world that gives to us the key, the answer uh, to the world's woes. Uh, so notice, notice what has happened here. We've gone from this individual, Abraham, to this family, to this uh, uh, collection of tribes, to this nation, to a kingdom, to the whole world. So we go from the individual 
to the world. And Jesus says, you know, before his ascension in the Gospels, it says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So in other words, a good news, a revelation from God has come that the whole world needs to know about, that God has said something and done something that we need to, to know, that everyone needs it to know, everyone needs to be invited to know. Now, what's this thing about deed and word? Well, this whole story that I just very rapidly uh, reminded you of, this whole story, there are two big moments in it, two fantastic moments that sort of redefined everything that came after them and, and also everything that came before them. Those two big moments in, in the story are the exodus from Egypt. Remember I just mentioned about Moses taking the, leading the people out of Egypt. You had the series of miracles that accompanied that, these various plagues, uh, and then the giving of the law to Moses the, in, in, on Mount Sinai. And then the second great moment is what we'll call the Christ event, uh, Jesus. These are the two, if I can describe it this way, the two centers of gravity in history for uh, the Catholic faith. The two centers of gravity or the centerpieces of uh, God's historical workings with human beings are these two moments. The Exodus, what is God communicating? God is communicating no matter how bad things get, no matter how enslaved the human family gets, God is working for our redemption. God is uh, working to bring us to the promised land. And what do we get from Christ? Uh, it's too hard to say everything, but one thing we get from that is that God himself has come to share in the human condition and shows us the way out of it, shows us the way out of our turmoil, and that the way out of it is the path of love and self-giving and total abandonment to the will of God. That's what Christ did. He gave everything. He goes to the depths of human suffering, but in the depths of human suffering, in doing the will of God, in totally abandoning himself to God, his Father, in totally giving himself, he gives not only an example to us. Remember Groundhog Day. What did he learn? He learned the path of love is the way to escape the hell of being turned in upon myself and the despair that comes with that. The way to life and to newness and a fresh tomorrow is the path of love. And Jesus is the one that shows us that most concretely in time and space and history. He goes to the very depths of abandonment and of loss and suffering and pain, but always the horizon of that, the, the outcome of that, was the resurrection to life. And in that, communicates to the human family, communicates to every one of us, that the end, the triumph in the end is not of death and of darkness and despair and chaos, but the end is life and resurrection and hope and love. All of that is communicated to us through the person of Jesus in time and space and history. And far more than what I can say in a few minutes is communicated to that. So these two great events, the Exodus and the Christ event, are the supreme moments of revelation from God. In fact, nothing more needs to be said than what God has communicated in Christ. Nothing more needs to be said. We just have to learn it. We just have to look at it. We just have to pull out its meaning. And that's what scripture is. The Old Testament, part of the Bible, these are all the books written before the coming of Jesus. And Jesus we take to be God's most supreme self-revelation. God told us more in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus than God will ever say about himself ever in all of history. That is the fullness of God's revelation. The Old Testament explains and applies and shows how people lived out the meaning of that event. 
the New Testament, that is the books written in the Bible after uh, the coming of Jesus, the New Testament books do the same thing for the Christ event. They tell us what it means. They relate the story. And they ponder the story and see how it is applied in life, in real life, every day. Uh, so the Old and New Testaments, the two parts of the Bible, are about those two events. That's what their, their center of gravity is. That's what they are prompted by. So God's revelation comes in deed and word. Here's the deeds. God does this. And the scriptures explain it, apply it, relate it, recount it, and so on. This is the deed. These are the words. All right? So the Bible is a collection of books that flow out of acts of God in history that are revelatory. They tell us about God's revelation, what God has made known to the human family. Okay? All right, let me say a couple of other things about each of those, and then I want to try to pause uh, uh, for a minute and see uh, what questions you might have. Try to, try to think up some really hard ones. Uh, those are always fun. Um, so I want to say a couple more things about Scripture. First, uh, let me get rid of this so I can do this. Um, so <clears throat> let's think about the Old Testament for a minute. It's a lot of books, and so you can get lost in it. You know, how, what is, what is the, the Old Testament? Well, it's made up of a, a collection of major parts. All right? So the first part we'll call the Torah or the law. The Old Testament, most of it, was written in the Hebrew language. Uh, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, all right? So they're uh, ancient forms of those languages. And so uh, not written in English, uh, written in these two languages. So the Hebrew language for the Old Testament, the word for law is Torah or Torah. Uh, and so a lot of the, you'll hear in, in, as you get more knowledgeable the Catholic tradition, you'll see uh, regularly, uh, you know, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew words just regularly, because that's, the, that's where tradition comes from. The Old Testament Hebrew, the New Testament Greek, and then the church has used Latin for many centuries <clears throat> as a common language to write documents in and so on, and then they're translated into other languages. So like De Verbum was originally written in Latin. The Catechism, I assume, was first written in Latin and then translated to many different languages. So it just provides a common language for communication. So we have a lot of technical words and phrases and things that show up uh, in, the, in the course of, of the life of the church that are taken from other languages. Uh, so, so the first part of the Old Testament is the Torah. Now, the Torah is made up of five books, the first five books in the Old Testament. Those five books, the center of it all is Moses that led the people out of Egypt and the Exodus. The second book in the Bible is called Exodus. The book of Genesis just sets up the book of Exodus. It tells us about the creation of the world and, and all the troubles that human beings had and about the earliest <clears throat> patriarchs or fathers of the, of, the, uh, of the tribes of Israel and so on. So it, it sets up the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus tells us about the Exodus, about Moses and all, all that happened and how they exited the land of Egypt and moved toward the promised land. Uh, Leviticus is the third book in the Old Testament. It's a collection of laws for priests. The priests were the Levite tribe, and so the book of Leviticus tells us about those laws. Uh, not the most stimulating book to read. Uh, if, you, if you learn about it, it can be a lot of fun to read, but some of these books are, are challenging. It's like reading a law book sometimes, some of these books, uh, because they're collections of legal codes and, and uh, laws and expectations and so on. Sometimes just long lists of names of families and, and so on, uh, like the book of Numbers, for example. Probably half of it is lists of names of people, so it's not very stimulating to read. Some 
some of these things, uh, but they were important uh, for the ancient Israelite people uh, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, so the book of Leviticus is a collection of laws. Uh, Numbers is uh, stories of, of, uh, uh, of the Israelite people for the 40 years that they journeyed around in the desert. And then the book of Deuteronomy is kind of a restatement of laws that you find back in the book of Exodus. A very rich book, a lot of, a lot of important stuff in there. But those are the first five books of the Old Testament. What you have after that is a series of, let's just call them historical books, that tell us uh, what happened after the uh, Israelite people finally made it to the promised land, to the land that they believed that God pr uh, promised to their ancestors, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. They finally get there, uh, and then for centuries they have all kinds of problems. And so the, there's a, a series of books, uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. All those books tell this narrative of what happened when they finally got to the Promised Land, how they organized themselves, some of the important people, how God was working with them, how the people kept turning away from God. That's something that keeps standing out in all this, how the people were unfaithful to the law, to the Torah, uh, that God had given them the law, and their job was to be faithful to it and to be a light to all the world and to show them the way to God. But they kept falling away from it. And they kept uh, disobeying God. They kept blending together with the nations around them and, and abandoning their religious faith. And so they kept facing these catastrophes and eventually being led off into exile and to Babylon, uh, and, uh, and the nation destroyed, and its temple destroyed, and all these things are worth talking about. I mean, every little thing I'm saying is a story in and of itself. So the Bible is very rich. You can study it the rest of your life and never even scratch the surface, but there's so many details that I'm leaving out. But that's essentially what you have in this long series of books, is an accounting or a narrative of what happened during that period of time. The third major uh, part of the Old Testament is a collection of wisdom or poetic books. These are some of the most beautiful books in the Old Testament uh, because they, uh, they tell us uh, or they embody uh, poetic uh, attempts to, uh, often poetic attempts, to try to answer hard questions and to, uh, and to worship God, to show the, the interior side of religious faith. So the Psalms, for instance, of the Old Testament are a collection of, of songs that were sung and they express a wide range of human emotions, uh, you know, from sadness to joy, uh, the same kinds of things that we experience in regular life. Uh, questioning, confusion are expressed in the Psalms. Uh, the book of Job is the Old Testament's way of trying to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, Job is a, a man that's seemingly very good and faithful, yet his life falls apart. Uh, why does that happen? And so the book of Job wrestles with that question of why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, other, uh, we could keep going on and on. The book of Proverbs is a beautiful collection of short, sort of wise sayings about how to live one's life. Uh, and, and on and on and on. There's, there's a bunch of others that we could talk about. Uh, the book Song of Solomon is a collection of love poems uh, that have been very richly uh, a source of stimulating our thinking about how we relate to God uh, on, a, on a very deep and personal level, in addition to how we relate to uh, persons that we love very passionately and deeply. Uh, so anyway, but again, there's lots of, uh, a, quite a number of those. The final part of the Old Testament is... Um, the prophetic books, the prophets. Prophets, um, prophets in the Old Testament are people who are given insight into why things are happening the way that they are, uh, sometimes with some ability to glimpse how things are going to go 
you know, how is the future going to go? That's how we think about prophets, as people who can predict the future. Uh, but that's not doesn't quite grasp it with the biblical prophets. That's, that's a piece of what they do. Uh, but more generally, the prophets are people who are given wisdom and insight to understand on a deep level what's happening uh, in the world and why it's happening, uh, and also where that might lead us. Uh, the prophets tend to focus on how the people are, are turning away from God uh, and, they, and they predict gloom that is coming or, or a catastrophe that is coming. Uh, we could talk about each of them. They're, they're all very beautiful and they're all unique. Uh, and uh, the prophets themselves are very fascinating and interesting people. Uh, but what I would add also, one other point about the prophets, though, which is not only are they people who are kind of predicting doom and gloom because of the unfaithfulness of the people to God, but they always conclude their message with a word of hope, that even though things are going to get bad, they're going to get better, and God is going to eventually fulfill his promises to his people, uh, that the future is a bright one, the future is a good one. It's dark getting there. It's, it's unsettling now. Uh, and, uh, and we ought to become more faithful to God and trust in God. But God's going to fulfill his plan in the end. That uh, it's going to, the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and others, they're going to be fulfilled. So that's where the whole Testament ends up. It ends up with this sort of gloomy but hopeful mindset. God's going to eventually come to us. God's going to eventually fulfill his promises. And that's how the Old Testament concludes, is with this hopeful but uh, uncertain uh, sense. Then we go to the New Testament. I'm going to erase this and briefly tell you about what you find in the New Testament. And by the way, at Mass, I'm sure all of you have been to Mass, there are th typically three readings on a Sunday Mass, on a weekday Mass, there's two readings, and a psalm response. So... The, in the liturgy or the form of our worship, uh, you have the first reading is typically taken from the Old Testament, so the, from somewhere in those books that we just uh, looked at. Uh, and there's a cycle to these where you kind of go through the whole Bible over three years of time, at least portions of all the parts of the Bible. Uh, you go through in a, in, a, in a cycle of three years. So the, the first reading is typically from the Old Testament, uh, not always. In certain seasons, like like uh, Easter, for instance, there'll be readings. The first reading will come from, say, the book of Acts in the New Testament, which tells us about the preaching of the early Christians, which often included references to the resurrection. And so during Easter, that's kind of the theme, so we emphasize that. So the first reading, typically from the Old Testament, there's a, there's a psalm response, so there'll be some portion of the psalms that there will be a, a refrain that keeps repeating, and then you'll hear sung or read uh, parts of a psalm in the Old Testament, one of these songs, and then one of the most beloved parts of the Bible. Then the third, uh, read, or the second reading, rather, uh, is typically taken from one of the books of the New Testament that we call the letters, uh, not always, but, but most of the time, from the letters of the New Testament, which I'll refer to in a moment when we look at the New Testament. The final reading where everybody stands up and we sing Alleluia and so on, the final reading is taken from one of the Gospels in the New Testament. The Gospels, there are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, are the most ancient accounts of the, the, the ministry, the, the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we believe that those books uh, are the most important, all of them are important, but these are the most important because they bring us the closest to God's supreme revelation of himself in, in human history. 
so the Gospels are the first part of the New Testament. The word gospel simply means good news. It means good news. Uh, it comes through the word gospel itself. Uh, it's not of, uh, of um, uh, Greek, Latin, or Hebrew origin. Uh, the, the Latin word and the, and the Greek word uh, are more like the Latin word is euangelion. Notice it's the Greek word euangelion, which means you is a prefix that means good. We, we have that in English, like with the word eulogy. It's where you say good words about someone when they died. So eu is the Greek prefix that means um, good. And then angelion uh, uh, means message, like the word angel is a messenger from God. And so euangelion literally means good news or a good proclamation. So the gospel uh, the Gospels are good news. They're the good news of Jesus, that, uh, that God has sent a Savior to the world and that we can be forgiven of our sins and we can have life eternal and so on. That's the good news. And these four books are called Gospels. The second part of the New Testament, and I'll distinguish the book of Acts, which is actually the sec second part of the book of Luke. But the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, tells us about what happened after the life of Jesus in the first, say, 30 or 40 years of the Christian movement. And it talks about, uh, it heavily focuses on Peter and Paul, who are two really important apostles. The apostle just means one sent. Apostolos is the Greek word meaning uh, a messenger, kind of like an ambassador, somebody that's sent to, to represent someone else. And so Jesus originally chose 12 apostles. That's significant, uh, the number is significant. But anyway, he chooses these 12. And then later, uh, Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus is his, uh, is his Hebrew name. Uh, Saul of Tarsus was a persecutor of Christianity, and he was converted to Christian faith, and he became uh, an apostle and, uh, uh, and traveled extensively uh, throughout the Mediterranean world where Christianity was born. He traveled extensively, establishing Christian churches all over the world. And that story is told in the book of Acts. It's quite a remarkable collection of stories. Uh, and then the third part of the New Testament uh, we'll call the letters. Uh, or epistles, they're sometimes called, but letters. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole series of letters, many of them written by the Apostle Paul, that are usually written to Christian churches or communities. The word church, by the way, is another interesting word. It uh, comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Ek means called out or out of. Uh, it means, the ek is a preposition that means out of, and then klesia means to call. And so ecclesia is, a, is a, uh, a group called together. Like right now, if we were living in, if we were spe speaking ancient uh, everyday Greek, uh, we would call this gathering here, we could call it an ecclesia. We are called out from our everyday lives and we've now formed a community. The word ecclesia came to be used of the, the Christian community more broadly. So we are part of a gathering together of people from the world to follow Jesus, to become uh, disciples or, or uh, followers of Christ. Uh, disciple is just a word that means uh, a follower of a teacher, or someone that, that teaches us. Uh, we identify ourselves with Jesus, the great teacher, uh, and, we, uh, uh, and we choose to follow him as Christians. So, uh, so anyway, the letters are a series of writings most of them to churches or communities of, of Christians in broader geographical areas, uh, most of them written really to address problems that were uh, happening. So they might have been uh, weird teachings that people had, or they were, uh, you know, uh, uh, certain kinds of immorality might have entered into the church or, or uh, confusions about different questions. Uh, and I'll just mention one or two particular ones. First Corinthians is one of these that uh, is particularly uh, easy to see the point that I'm making about it because apparently the Apostle Paul had received a letter from the Corinthian church. Corinth is a city in uh, uh, 
today, about an hour and a half drive outside of Athens, Greece. Uh, and there's still the ruins of the city that are quite beautiful to see by the water. Uh, but the city of Corinth was a, uh, an important uh, port city. And so there were a lot of weird ideas that would come through there and a lot of immorality. So the sailors would come through and they wanted to, you know, have a nice party life there and so on. And so the city was known for its immorality. It was also known for its paganism and, uh, and other weird ideas that would come through there. So the church sent Paul a letter where they asked him a bunch of questions. What do we do about this? And what do we do about that? And what do we do about the other? Some of them very, very practical questions. Uh, questions about marriage. What if you have a Christian who's married to a pagan and, uh, and they don't like it? How do you deal with that? And so chapter 7 of the book deals with that. Other questions like, um, uh, what about uh, eating meat that's been offered in sacrifice to idols? So they would have in the morning, they would offer these, these animals in, in uh, uh, pagan temples, and then they would take the meat uh, from the animal that was sacrificed to, say, uh, uh, you know, goddess Diana or something. And so they take it to the market, and then a Christian goes by. Can he buy that? chicken that's hanging there because it was just sacrificed to, uh, to Diana. Uh, can, a, can a Christian eat that? And so uh, that question is presented to Paul. Can we eat meat offered in sacrifice to idols? So there's those kinds of questions. And there are bigger philosophical questions. There were people there at Corinth who were denying the resurrection of the body. And so Paul in chapter 15 writes a magnificent chapter defending the resurrection of the body and basically built on the resurrection of Christ. And so anyway, it's a, mar a marvelous chapter. And there's a bunch of other issues like that that Paul deals with in that book. It's a gold mine for us because we can see what the early Christians not only were struggling with, but also how the apostles answered those difficult questions that they had. So anyway, there's various different letters, uh, and it takes us all the way up to the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the, uh, in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And uh, the book of Revelation is, uh, I put it separately here, even though you could call it an epistle or a letter, uh, because uh, the first several chapters uh, tell us that, um, that uh, Jesus appears to John on the island of Patmos. Uh, so this is a little tiny island. Uh, you can go there today. Uh, a little tiny island off the, in the Aegean Sea, close to Turkey, in between Turkey and Greece. Uh, uh, he was exiled to this island, a uh, tiny little place, not very habitable, uh, uh, as, a, as a form of persecution against him for being a Christian and preaching the Christian message. And so uh, while he was there, he, he reports this vision of Jesus where he gives him a series of letters or, or messages to give to the churches that are nearby. Uh, and that's what you have in the first several chapters of the book is this appearance of Jesus and these, uh, these uh, letters that are given, uh, uh, dictated to, to John. And then what follows that is a series of, uh, of what, are, what we could call apocalyptic uh, imagery. Uh, that's a complicated matter, and I'm happy to talk about it if you want to talk about it in just a minute. But, uh, uh, but uh, the, the, the goal of it is, if you read through it, you'll find, first of all, it's probably very strange. Uh, it's a very strange book. Uh, it's, it's a dramatic, uh, highly symbolic description of some type of intense battle that's taking place, and that's a matter of some dispute as to exactly what battle it's talking about. Uh, some see it as a sort of cosmic historical battle. Some people see it as the friction and battle between the Roman Empire and Christians in the first few centuries, where Christians were uh, intensely persecuted by the Romans. And that uh, what we know for sure is, and, and I can talk a long time about this, uh, but this is really not the place, that what we know for sure, though, is the book is describing not only this intense battle, but also the final victory of Christ over 
uh, all of these enemies and, and this intense demonic sort of struggle that's taking place. And it takes us all the way to uh, the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom over all evil in the world. So it's a, it's a beautiful book to read, uh, but many people stumbled over the intense symbolism in the book, which, uh, by the way, I think the key to all of that is knowing the Old Testament well, because most of that imagery is drawn from the Old Testament and applied to the circumstances that the book is describing. Okay. So I've talked for a long time, so let me, uh, uh, let me try to bring it in for a close. I know I have to let you go at 10.30 promptly, so that brings us down to about 15 minutes. So here's what I'd like to uh, just say a word or two about. I, wanna, I have to say something about tradition. So uh, I've told you about Scripture uh, and kind of given you, hopefully, a bird's-eye view from you know 30,000 feet up of what you find in the Bible. Uh, so... You know, we've covered the whole Bible in this uh, in this session, but obviously not in any detail, uh, any 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 uh, full detail at all. Uh, that's what the rest of your life is for: is to work on that. Uh, but here, hopefully, to get a framework for thinking about what is it. So we say in our in our Catholic tradition, we say that um, the su the supreme event is the Christ event. Out of that has come words, the words of Scripture, the New Testament in particular, out of the Christ event. And so what about us today? How do, we, how do we get this? I mean, are we just throwing out Bibles and saying, good luck figuring it out and what all this means? Uh, no, we have a tradition. Now let me explain what we mean by tradition real quick. Tradition. Now there is uh, a sense of tradition that we maybe can say is a little t tradition, and then there's a big t understanding of tradition. A little t sense of tradition is we all have traditions. You know, we have family traditions. We have, uh, you know, quirky things that are characteristic of your family that may not be characteristic of the next person. There's some Catholics who have certain devotional practices of prayer that another person doesn't have. There's all kinds of traditions that come and go. There are things that people used to do 500 years ago that we don't do anymore. Uh, that's not what I mean here by tradition. Tradition here is that way in which the faith is passed along from century to century, from generation to generation. How do we transmit the faith. Uh, how did we get it? And what am I supposed to believe? Uh, what is the Catholic Church offering to me? What is it telling me? What am I supposed to enter into? Uh, there, there are things about the faith that, that come and go. Uh, there are certain disciplinary practices or uh, community fasts or way that we celebrate Lent. There are all kinds of things we change. Uh, you know, um, uh, certain ways in, uh, in which there are certain things about the, the liturgy of the church that have been adjusted through the centuries uh, that, uh, that may be different, there, um, and, and so on. There are lots of, lots of things that can change. But there are some things that can't change, or there are some things that, that stay the same through all of the ups and downs of the centuries. And so what, where do we find that, and, and what exactly is it? Well, let me, uh, let me try to give you a quick example to get at this very quickly uh, in, in just a minute or two. Um, um, there are lots of different forms of Christianity in the world, a lot of different religions in the world, uh, but there are other forms of Christianity besides Catholicism that read the Bible differently than we do. Uh, for example, I don't see them as often anymore, but you may have at some point in your life had someone knock on your door and try to share with you about their faith, and you find out, if you ask, uh, or if you look at their literature, you find out that they're a Jehovah's Witness, let's say, or a Mormon. They like to go around and knock on people's doors, and so those two are probably the more likely ones to have knocked on your door if you've had someone visit you. Uh, now, Jehovah's Witnesses is a 19th century American-based religious movement uh, that is based on uh, 
a, uh, a reading of the Bible that rejects a belief in the Trinity. So they believe an idea that was taught in the fourth century uh, by a priest by the name of Arius that the church rejected. In fact, the Nicene Creed that you're going to think about this week and we'll talk about next week, the Nicene Creed was specifically written in response to Arius's teaching. Arius taught that, that the Son of God, that we see as Jesus in history, the Son of God was a created God, that he was created by the Father. The Father is properly God. The Father is eternal God. But the Father created a Son, and then the Son created the world, uh, S-O-N, Son. So the Father creates a Son at some point, and then the Son creates the world. The church rejected that belief and insisted that the Son of God is eternal, that is one with the Father, and has always existed with the Father. Now, that's a complicated theological idea, and that's expressed, though, in the Nicene Creed. And probably, my guess would be, some of the questions that you'll come with next, next week will be about the language that's used to respond to Arianism. It's a complicated issue. Now, if a, if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, they will probably try to convince you at some point, if you listen to them long enough, they will try to convince you that the belief in the Trinity is an evil idea. It's a bad one. Uh, and I've seen their literature. I've had conversations with them plenty of times. I know their history. I have, used to have, I don't think I have anymore, uh, their translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. If you take uh, the New World Translation and look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word for John is a metaphor for the Son of God. So the Son of God was God. In the Jehovah's Witness Bible, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, little g. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, are a historical reoccurrence of a fourth century religious movement. Now, why do I mention all that? Well, because if you ever talk to one of them, unless you know the Bible really well, they're going to run circles around you because they have a collection of 10 or 15 verses of Scripture that they think support their belief system. And those 10 or 15 verses of Scripture, they will start with them and they will you know, rattle them off to you and you're going to find yourself disoriented. How do I answer that? I don't know what that means, or I don't know how to answer that, or I could see your point on that. Well, tradition is, for the Catholic, is we don't just read the Bible in a vacuum or in a void. We read the Bible in a tradition. How have we understood that? How has the church understood this all through the centuries? Who is Christ? Uh, what is our worship all about? How do we read the Bible? Because remember, the Bible is a collection largely of narrative stories. It's not a systematic treatise that says, you know, this, it's not like this, you know, catechism. The Bible is a collection of stories, of reflections and reactions to particular problems of their time. And so the tradition is the framework in which we read Scripture. It's the way of organizing our thinking as we approach the Scriptures that allows us to see its meaning in the broader framework of the lived faith of the church over the last 2,000 years. And so the church has understood Christ in a certain way, the Son of God, the Father, the Trinity, and all this stuff. They've understood it within a certain set of parameters for 2,000 years. And that's the, that shapes our approach to Scripture. If you do not have that organizing context, then you fragment and fracture. It's inevitable. You fracture and fragment if you don't have that context of tradition, capital T, 
uh, to guide you and help you understand it. That's exactly what happened with the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. I have a lot of wonderful Protestant friends, but the reality was Martin Luther in 1517, between 1517 and 1521, when he, he was a Catholic monk, as were all of the reformers, they were Catholics, they were priests, they were, they were born in Catholic homes, as everybody in Catholic Europe was, um, virtually everybody, uh, was born in that framework. Martin Luther, at a certain point, said, in reaction to corruption, legitimate criticisms, legitimate crit criticisms uh, from Luther, but at a certain point he said, I won't believe anything unless I am convinced by my personal reading of Scripture that it is true. And he broke with the tradition. And what happened immediately was people started disagreeing with Luther that followed the same principle. And so you ended up with not only the Lutherans in Germany, but the Reformed Church in Switzerland and the Church of England later on in England and the radical uh, Protestants who broke away from any, they didn't have state protection like, like the Lutherans and the, the Calvinists in the Reformed Church in Switzerland and the Anglican Church in England. They didn't have that protection and so they splintered and fragmented in a thousand different directions. The Anabaptists uh, were criticized heavily and persecuted by the, the Protestants and so on. And so it ended up fragmenting all the way to here we are in the 21st century. That kept dividing up uh, because what the, the Protestant tendency was to, when there was corruption or things were not going well, they would break off and form another group based on their reading of Scripture. So, for example, the Methodists, which are one of the larger uh, forms of Protestant Christianity in the United States, the Methodists broke away from the Anglican Church or the Church of England uh, as a renewal movement. Uh, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodists, didn't want to break away, but they eventually broke away because the, the Church of England was resistant to some of their teachings and what they were doing. So then that formed the Methodist Church. Uh, the Baptist Church, uh, first one, I think, in 1648 in the United States, first one here, and the, uh, there was one two, a couple of decades earlier in, in uh, I think, in... Uh, uh, Amsterdam area, uh, but they came to the United States based on the principle that each church determines itself. It's a democratic system. Each church determines itself, and there's no creed, there's no, uh, there's no tradition that they have to be accountable to. Uh, they had cooperative organizations like the Southern Baptist Convention, for, for example, but each church is autonomous, and it, it decides on its own the direction that it will go. Then you get to our day, where in the last 20 or 30 years, you've had the explosion of this phenomenon of non-denominationalism where you have churches that are connected to no historical tradition at all. Uh, Lakewood Church here in Houston is a, is a fine example of that. A very large church, but they have no accountability or structure or tradition at all. You want to know what they believe? Give them a call. Look at their website. I don't know what they believe because they have all of them have something different that they emphasize. And so that's what happened. And again, I'm not criticizing these people personally. A lot of them are very, very wonderful, delightful human beings. But you don't have this tradition. That's what the tradition does, is it orients us. It gives us a framework in which to think about what the scriptures mean. And that's the way the church always thought about it until the 16th century when there was fragmentation by rejecting the tradition and saying, we, we'll, we'll go with scripture alone, only the Bible. Well, only the Bible, the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you they believe that, and the Mormons will tell you they believe that, the Baptists will tell you that, the Methodists will tell you that, and every one of the non-denominational churches will tell you that, and they all disagree on a lot of different things. It's because we need that framework, that continuity of the tradition, to help orient us to the contents of Scripture. Some of those differences are, are minor, and some of them are very significant uh, between these different organizations. Okay, i got to stop. We don't have very much time. Any, any quick questions here? Uh, we tried to do too much. We tried to tell you the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the, the history of Christianity in, in an hour, so uh, or an hour and twenty minutes. Uh, questions, thoughts.
there's a little rule in teaching that I've been told that you wait, you wait eight seconds because people have to process or they don't want to be the first one to say anything. Uh, so, so we're going to awkwardly sit in silence for, uh, for eight seconds. Unless you want to say something. <laughs> What's that? I said I do that. Yeah. I teach high school kids. Oh, do you? Yeah. All I do is do with you. I just stare at their butt. Yeah. I had a very simple question. Sure. Um, when you said the, uh, the New Testament, um, the third part, the third book, letters, you said it was mm -hmm. a series of uh, writings to address problems to, to mm -hmm. the church. So who were the people writing those letters? Was it just apostles mm -hmm. or who exactly? Uh, good question. Uh, it's, a, it's a mixture of things. You have many of them are written by the Apostle Paul. So, and they're all bunched together, the ones that are traditionally associated with the Apostle Paul. So, uh, you know, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, uh, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon are the books that are traditionally ascribed to the Apostle Paul. That's, that's, uh, and, they, and they all say they're written by the Apostle Paul. So that's a pretty good hunk of those letters. Then you have a collection of letters uh, by... Uh, the book of Hebrews doesn't have a name on it. It has been associated with two or three different people, but it's been revered from ancient times, and so it's been a part of Scripture from the beginning. So, but you have a couple of books written by Peter, uh, one of the apostles, so First and Second Peter. Uh, you have um, uh, uh, three letters written by John, uh, uh, First, Second, Third John, they're called. Uh, very, very beautiful books, by the way. Uh, First, Second, Third John, so he's an apostle. You have one written by Jude, who is not an apostle. He is a relative of Jesus. Uh, James, uh, who uh, was not uh, an apostle, but he too was a relative of Jesus, and he was a leader, uh, like a bishop, in the Jerusalem church in the first century. Uh, so those are, uh, I think I covered all of them. So you have uh, P uh, Paul, Peter, um, uh, John, Jude, and James. I think that covers them all. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Anyone else? Hard questions. <laughs> so last year there was an article just kind of caught steam on it and um, it was basically with the Bible being translated from Hebrew to Greek to Latin and then to English and then whatever. Mm -hmm. That there were some phrases that possibly were mistranslated mm -hmm. um, and all that stuff. But, mm -hmm. of course, the article was kind of like, mm -hmm. I don't know to trust the source or whatever. Sure, sure. So, yeah, you're yeah uh, so about translations of the Bible, that's a great question. Um, uh, how, how much confidence can we have in the translations? Well, the first question that I think needs to be addressed is, how did we get the actual text? You know, so uh, that's an interesting and long story, too. Uh, we have thousands of ancient copies of the biblical books. Uh, we don't have the original writings, uh, the original pieces of paper, you know, that these things are written on. Uh, it was, it, the, the interest in retaining the original, you know, copies of things is more of a modern interest. Uh, the ancients, what they would do is they would take, they would take a text, uh, and we'll, we'll treat this as the last question here because I know you, I'm, I'm going to respect your time. Uh, they, they, what they would do is, like with Old Testament books, they would, they would take a book uh, that they have, which was typically in scroll form. They didn't have page books like we have. They would have a scroll. So a scroll would be made up typically of, uh, in the Old Testament time, it'd be made up of, uh, of uh, a piece of leather. So it was fairly durable, a piece of leather that they would write on, a scribe would write on, and then they would roll it up and they would put it in a, in a jar. 
uh, for, for safekeeping. So a large library would have lots of jars in it because that's where you put books is, is on, in scroll form. Well, as they begin to deteriorate, which they inevitably do over time, as they begin to deteriorate, they would hire a scribe to copy it perfectly. And then once they had established that it was perfectly copied, they would then bury the original one uh, because they, out of respect for it, they would bury the original document of a holy document. Uh, and so then they had a perfect new copy. They didn't have museums to put old stuff in. They, they treated it with respect and buried it. And so there was a big uh, place for scribes. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't have computers. They didn't have, you know, uh, stuff to store things in, typewriters. So they, there were professional scribes who would copy things and make sure that they were perfectly copied. There were systems for doing that. There are actually ways that we can test the accuracy of the copying process. For example, a uh, hundred years ago, the oldest copies of, of certain books in the Bible, most books of the Bible, the oldest copies of Old Testament books that we had were about 1,000 years old. That would take us back to about 1,900, 1,000 A.D. For some of those books, that was 1,000 years after they were written, or, or 1,500 years after they were written. So how do we know that that process of transmitting the text is accurate? Well, there was a, a, a magnificent find in the Holy Land, in the caves around the Dead Sea, that you may have heard of before, the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they found copies of biblical books that date back to the first century AD, so about a thousand years older than the ones that we have. And one of the remarkable things about it is how well preserved the text was over a thousand year period of time. That the book of Isaiah, for example, one of the most magnificent finds there was a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah, which is one of the longer books in the Old Testament, 66 chapters long. It would wrap around this whole room, the scroll would. It's a huge scroll. And uh, I've seen the scroll with my own eyes in, in Israel in uh, a, a museum called the, the Shrine of the Book. And so it wraps around the whole middle of the of the museum. Um, the 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 the, the uh, museum is in the shape of a scroll. If I didn't already say that, uh, I was just a picturing the, the building. Uh, but in comparing the two, the differences are extremely minor. There are mistakes that scribes make when they copy things, and so there might be a, a different way of spelling a word, or uh, a word might drop out, or a phrase might repeat twice, or something like that. The kinds of mistakes we make when we copy things, when you you know how your eyes can drop down to a line, you repeat something or whatever. So you can catalog those mistakes and you can see them. Uh, and so what was amazing that came out of it was how how well preserved the text of Scripture was over that thousand year period of time. So it was a it was a, a very important thing for them to make sure that the texts were accurately uh, preserved. So uh, let me just get directly to your question real fast and then let you go. Um, the, what, what the conclusion of the matter is, without giving the whole case for it, the conclusion of the matter is we have a very, very high degree on a scientific basis, uh, a textual critical basis, we have a very high degree of confidence that the text of Scripture that we have is sound and reliable. All right, So the, the best Hebrew text and Greek text are very sound and reliable. Now, the next question is, what about our translations of it? Well, because language is always changing, we have to always reconsider our translations. Uh, and so there's a two thousand, there's a three thousand year history of commentaries on Scripture, uh, translations of Scripture, and so we have a lot of data to work with to make sure that our translations are accurate, uh, that they accurately present in our language the meaning of the text. The best thing to do would be to learn the languages themselves, uh, so that you can see how the language works and so on. 
But the next best thing is to use a good translation, and there are lots of great translations of the Bible that accurately and consistently and harmoniously present uh, the meaning of the text. I could talk a whole lot about that. I've spent uh, a lot of time studying not only this matter, uh, but also working with the biblical languages, and so I'm happy to talk about that issue if you'd like to next week. Uh, but I better let you go because I'm already over time. Uh, but before we do go, let's, let's conclude with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving God, we're grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for Christ. Uh, our Lord and your Son, who has revealed your heart of love for us. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to think about your revelation to us. May we be more attentive as a result of our, our ponderings this morning, more attentive to the ways that you're present to us in one another uh, and in the world that you have made, and most supremely in uh, the deeds and words that you have communicated to us, uh, your people, uh, down through the centuries. And we pray that you would uh, bless our day, bless the week before us, uh, and give to us your grace in all things. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, good to be with you. And uh, I'll, I'll make sure to make next week's class more interactive because we'll start with accumulating the questions that you have. All right, so uh, make sure and read the Creed, and I'll see you next week. Thank you all. You're supposed to be here next week as well, right? Yes, that's right. Are you, are you